In John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. The feast isn't named, which means it probably doesn't really connect with the events that we're going to be looking at. And Jesus heals a paralytic on the Sabbath. The Pharisees see that, and they're not so interested in the fact that this person who was paralyzed for 38 years is suddenly able to carry his bedroll. They're interested in the fact that he is carrying his bedroll on a Sabbath. And so, there's a, uh, the, the bulk of the chapter is actually not devoted to the healing itself, but to the controversy about the healing. And part of that is because when they confront Jesus about what really amounts to a violation of their um, interpretation of the Sabbath laws, this would be a, a theological discussion uh, at, at this level. He, you know, Jesus hasn't clearly violated the law of Moses. He's violated their interpretation of it. But rather than simply take a, a relatively small matter, Jesus uh, responds to the Sabbath violation by saying that, you know, my father works on the Sabbath, I'm working on the Sabbath. Uh, in other words, he claims to be God, which is uh, probably the, one of the more effective ways that he could have escalated the situation. And so we, we see kind of in the second half of the chapter, Jesus defending uh, his response to to the Sabbath violation. Um, the first section really kind of focuses, I, I think, at least the, the way that I understand it, on how it is that you, there can be God the Father and Jesus can also be God at the same time without violating monotheism. And we, we almost finished that last time, we just got a verse or two to cover. But the second half is going to look at how extraordinary the claim that Jesus made is. and. Jesus needs to have something to, to back that up, and so he's going to call forth three witnesses in, in the section that we're going to look at. But before I, I get into that, one of the things that kind of struck me um, is you know, the, the response of very upright, very religious people. It kind of got me thinking, and so when we talked about this in the small group, I had people kind of share the verse and the, the scriptures that they found to be the, um, the most frightening or the most concerning. And if I were to, to pull this group, I, I know I'd probably get a, a range of different answers. But one that would probably come up is the one that uh, I, I would probably point to. It's Matthew seven twenty one through 23, and I'll just read that for you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, uh, sorry, the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out uh, demons in your name? and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, the people that Jesus is describing in, the, in this passage in Matthew would be very well regarded in whatever churches they attended. They would look good on the outside. They would do all the right things. They'd say all the right things. They'd know all the right things, and they'd generally fit well into a solid evangelical church. They could be elders or deacons. They might teach Sunday school. They would consider themselves to be saved. You can see that in the Matthew passage. Um, but they don't know Jesus. And the, the reason that I bring that up is because in this passage, we're looking at the most religious, devout, and devoted, uh, externally at least, of the Israelites, God's chosen people. Um, and they're encountering the Savior that they're, the entirety of the scriptures that they studied so diligently pointed to. And they completely miss him. Um, this isn't a passage for you know, non-religious uh, people, for uh, people that are just kind of curious about the Bible. This is a, 
you know, a, a, a passage for those who think that they belong to God and one that we want to be uh, very careful that we, we look at closely and we understand uh, what they missed and make sure that we can see uh, what the Scriptures are pointing to. <clears throat> so, you know, as Jesus is sort of defending the idea that um, that you know he can be God, there can be God the Father, and that that monotheism is actually compatible with this. Um, one of the the defenses that he raises is, is uh, that he can be also God because he's perfectly in line with what the Father does. That's one of the things that we we looked at last time. Uh, he does nothing by himself. He does what only what the, he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For just as the Father gives life to those. Um, uh, that he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone that he wants. Jesus moves on to the subject of judgment. Jesus is uh, accused in front of self-appointed judges over him, and he reveals that he, in fact, has been appointed by the Father to judge the world. Uh, as we move into the next section, we'll see that um, the leaders are indeed judged by their inability, or the, perhaps it would be better to say their unwillingness to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God in this section. To ancient ears, sonship was more associated with learning a trade, like uh, farming or carpentry, and learning to emulate what was most as you know, associated with the Father than sonship was uh, associated strictly with heredity. You know, learning um, how to function in society, what to do from one's Father, is what Jesus is explaining when he says, for the Father loves the Son and show them, shows him all that he is doing. We're moving into a section where Jesus is about to call forth three answers to support this extraordinary claim that he's made in the first section and tried to substantiate. But a couple of little details to finish, as I, I mentioned. So we're going to look at uh, 28 through 30. <clears throat> Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the here, or sorry, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And verse 30, uh, translations will differ on kind of where to put that. I would put that as the, kind of the concluding section of, the, of this section. And so that's how I'm going to treat it. Most of you probably have an ESV. The ESV does the opposite of that. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So in, in 28, we, we, we've already looked at that a little bit, but in 29, there's a statement made that I, I probably shouldn't pass over without at least saying, saying something about it. Jesus says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil uh, to the resurrection of judgment. And you know, to our ears, this might kind of sound funny. It, you'd expect Jesus almost to say, you know, those who have believed in me to the resurrection of life and those who have rejected me to the resurrection of death, which is certainly true biblically, no, no question about that. But the scripture never, as far as I can tell, and according to, to some people I respect that I've listened to, describes judgment in that sense. Judgment is always based on works. Um, so what, is it, um, what does this mean for you know, unbelievers that have lived really good lives? Or what does it mean for the thief on the cross who only turned things around for, you know, a matter of hours and probably wasn't really able to do much in the way of good works in the, the brief time that he was a believer. Um, it, 
you, we could do a whole Sunday school class on this, and it would probably be a good, good subject at some point, so I'm not going to go into depth. But good works are only possible through Christ, I, I think, is the answer to that. Anything that is done in the flesh is going to be tainted by, by selfish motives. It's going to be ultimately for the glorification of oneself. It's not going to be uh, for the, the chief end of man, which is exalting God and glorifying God. So uh, an unbeliever is not capable of doing any good works. Believers who actually know God, uh, their works can be done to God's glory. Uh, not perfectly, but to an extent. Yes, Mark? Yes, you can, but those works Yeah, but the, the, the judgment does look at them. Uh, I, I think that's what this is, is saying. <clears throat> and if you want to know what good works are, I think the you know, fruit of the Spirit is a, a good place to, to look. And you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit implies, as Mark was, was saying, that you know, it, it's the Spirit that's producing this fruit in us. Um, I, so the, the question is, you know, has, has it been the case that the Father has delegated judgment to the Son uh, prior uh, to this? And I, I certainly don't think that there's any place in the Scripture where you would be able to go and specifically see that, but um, you know, I, I think that this is probably talking about final judgment at the end of time, which you know, hasn't taken place yet. So I, I think that's what you're getting at in your question. Mark? Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so verse 30, I'm going to kind of trade in with this section because you know, the section is talking about judgment, and Jesus is basically going to you know, give us um, uh, you know, a, a statement of you know, kind of his unique ability to, to judge. I, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, and if you kind of look at what, what Jesus is saying, Jesus is, is, is saying that he really can be kind of the ideal judge in that he's able to judge perfectly, fairly, 
because <clears throat> you know, his only criterion and judgment is uh, not seeking his own will, but seeking God's will, the will of him who sent me. Um, so his judgment is impartial. And what, what's kind of implied there, it's certainly true, is that human judgment is always flawed because there's always ulterior motives on the part of the judge. And you know, we, you know, we could point to all sorts of examples of this. I think the, the recent thing with impeachment uh, would be an example. And it doesn't matter where on the political spectrum you are. In the Senate, you know, there was a trial, and essentially all the Republicans voted one way, essentially all of the Democrats voted the other way. Um, regardless of what the, the just outcome was, uh, it was pretty clear that partisan politics you know, kind of determined the process. Um, you know, the, the judges there were motivated by their own interests. They, they were motivated by their party's interests and the political advantages and disadvantages of a political verdict. There's hardly any room for considering what, uh, what verdict is just. Um, and courtrooms are, often aren't as bad and the judges tend to have kind of less at, at stake but there's still you know, self-interest um, you know, on the part of a judge and you know, imperfect uh, knowledge of things as well. And so we, we don't get perfectly just judgments, but we will uh, with Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. But you know, there, there's an irony that John can't kind of resist passing or pointing out. You know, that it's the Pharisees that are sitting in judgment of Jesus. Is their judgment just? Or is it influenced by entirely selfish motives? And I think Jesus has really emphasized that. Uh, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the key points. Yes, there's there's submissions kind of within the the plan for the the world and. Re- and, and redemption, but but not in the yeah. Yeah, and th- this is probably the, the overall passage that, one of the most important passages that you would go to to, to point out the, the truth of what you're saying. You'd, but the, the, the earlier part, yeah. Yeah, but in the earlier parts of this, he talks about how united his will is with God the Father's will. And that's, the, um, and that's his defense of how he can be God, God the Father can be God, and there can be one God. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, this passage was very intimidating to me. At, um, to, but it, it's been really rich, and, and uh, I've enjoyed studying it. Uh, Jesus has kind of emphasized though, this this idea that uh, <clears throat> you know, about judgment before. Let's uh, go back to John three, and we'll look at nineteen through twenty-one. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved dark things rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so this is exactly what is going on. You know, Jesus is 
kind of uh, metaphorically shining light on the works of the religious leaders. And so they're judging him rather than respond appropriately to what you know, his light is showing in, in their works. Jesus is showing the Pharisees that they're unfit to judge him. Um, he, he shows that their deeds, in fact, are evil since they seek their own will. They don't seek God's will in this. They seek to remove the light so that their deeds will uh, not be shown to be evil. They're judging him for their own self-interest and, and to preserve their apparent glory, not out of a concern uh, for justice or concern for God's glory. This is in contrast to Jesus, who is perfectly equipped to judge fairly because he cares for, only for God's glory. Um, <clears throat> so given the trial setting, it's appropriate for Jesus to bring forth witnesses to confirm his claims. He has stated that he's the Son of God in a way that preserves monotheism, but can he prove that he is who he claims to be in, in court? And so kind of with this in mind, let's take a look at the second section. Uh, this is verses uh, 31 through 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the, fa the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, and his form you have not seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom uh, you have set your hope. For, you have believed, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, oh, and I did not keep up, I apologize. Um, the, the first thing that Jesus said that's probably worth mentioning, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And I, I think if you kind of it does help to, to be picturing this sort of in a legal setting where you need to establish something with two or three witnesses in, in the Jewish system. And so it, it certainly wouldn't be the case that what Jesus is saying isn't actually true. I think that what it's um, <clears throat> saying is that it wouldn't be admissible in court. Uh, without witnesses, Jesus' claims would not be legally compelling. Um, or maybe you could say that they might like plausibility. They'd be without corroboration. Um, <clears throat> there's another that bears witness about Jesus in, in verse 32. And 32 is a little vague as to who this is, but John the Baptist has probably at least been imprisoned, if not uh, been you know, murdered by uh, Herod at this point. So it, that... <coughs> Excuse me. The tense it suggests it probably is not John the Baptist. Um, 
it, it, it would uh, almost certainly be the father that Jesus is re, uh, referring to there. And, and that's going to be developed uh, later on. So in verse 34, Jesus seems to kind of discount the witness of John the Baptist. Um, and he, there's a lot that Jesus is saying there. But you remember that John the Baptist made a very significant stir within Judaism. You know, the, the Pharisees and the kind of the you know, religious elite might not have thought very much of John the Baptist, but the nation overall certainly did. They, um, he was widely regarded as a prophet. In fact, he was the first prophet in a 400-year span. Um, so if you were looking for a good witness, you know, John the Baptist would be about as compelling a witness as you'd be able to, to summon for yourself. It's hard to imagine you know, uh, producing a better witness for your defense. But to Jesus, human testimony, regardless of uh, how high of the source, is, is not worth concerning, considering. He mentions it because he, th he thinks it might be helpful to his audience, but he's not going to use it himself. He only thinks that it might be you know, helpful to them uh, to establish its identity. And if you think about it, it would be completely beneath God to depend on human testimony. God is completely self-sufficient. God needs nothing, um, certainly not the testimony of a, a human being. Uh, any, any human testimony is inherently unreliable. For Jesus to rely on that would not be consistent with John's strong emphasis on Jesus' deity. So Jesus does have three witnesses that he's going to produce that are superior to John the Baptist. I'm going to move to 36 and, and see the first witness that, uh, that Jesus calls. And that's his works. And I, I don't think it's primarily the miraculous nature of the works that Jesus is referring to, although that, that, that's certainly there and Jesus' works certainly were miraculous. But it's that the, these works in, in John are always signs that are pointing to the reality of, of who Christ is. So if we... Um, we won't look at that, never mind. Um, but let me, let me read it. If we kind of go back to John chapter 2, verse 11, uh, this is right after the turning of, of uh, water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The miracle pointed to Jesus' glory, not just his ability to perform miracles, but it pointed to the, the wine flowing at the Messiah's coming. In John, signs always point to Christ's identity um, and to Christ's glory, and ultimately, they point to God's glory. Right? So I, I think that the uh, specific work that Jesus wanted them to see uh, is mentioned earlier. The dead are now hearing the voice of the Son of God, and those who uh, hear the voice of the Son of God are living. So that's a, a paraphrase of verse 28. But they couldn't see the uh, truly miraculous regeneration that Jesus was performing, but they could at least see a man walking with a mat who had formerly been confined to it. What works uh, of theirs would they be able to point to that would compare to that work? Yet, they were perfectly happy to put themselves in the place of judgment and to treat Jesus as the accused, even though they had no comparable works uh, to, to what Jesus was doing that they could point to, to to show their justification to judge. The second witness that Jesus calls in, in 37a is the Father. Um, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Interestingly, Jesus does not point out how the Father has borne witness uh, specifically, at least not in, in a way that's simple to see. Instead, he teaches that they knew nothing of the Father. Specifically, um, they have never heard his voice, they have never seen his form, um, and they do not have his word abiding in them. The proof of this 
is that they do not believe in the one that the Father has sent. There's almost certainly a contrast with John the Baptist in mind. Uh, John did accept the identity of Jesus because John the Baptist knew the Father. If God's Word abided in the religious leaders as it abided in John the Baptist, they too would have believed in the one that God the Father sent. Finally, Jesus calls upon the Scriptures. There's much about the, the Scriptures the religious, the religious leaders got right. They believed them to be the inspired words of God. They studied and memorized them. They accepted them as the highest authority that were available to them. But there was something that, that's obviously deficient in how they understood uh, God's Word because they didn't see that it pointed to Jesus. Part of that problem might have been, and you can kind of go back to, to Jewish writings of the time and see this a little bit more clearly, that they considered merely possessing the Word of God to be of such profit that just possessing God's Word was effective on its own. Um, they, they stopped short of receiving the Word. Uh, had they been under the authentic authority of God's Word, they, they should have recognized the one to whom the Word pointed. But let's, let's be a little bit more practical. Uh, what is it that they were missing? What did they fail to see in God's Word that should have pointed to Jesus? How should they have read the Scriptures in such a way that they would have welcomed Jesus when He arrived instead of rejecting Him? So, in, in thinking through this, if the most educated uh, religious leaders and most educated teachers of that day couldn't see it, we, we shouldn't expect it to be a really deep understanding that you know, can only emerge after you know, years of reading dusty commentaries and, and things like that. It should be much more apparent. It should be something that, that anyone that's familiar with God's Word should be able to, to see. Um, and so here's my interpretation, right? my kind of guess as to what Jesus is really pointing to here. Um, in the Scriptures, we should see a God of perfect glory, a perfect beauty, perfect goodness, which sounds good until we also see that that God is also a God of perfect justice and perfect knowledge. The Scriptures also show the standards of God as revealed in the Bible, standards that we can't hope to meet, not even briefly. Transgressions of God's standards must be death. God's justice demands this, and the Scripture is clear on this point. Unfortunately, our hearts are deceitful. They're, they're desperately wicked. Um, not only do the Scriptures state this, but seeing God's standards in the Scriptures make it plain that we fall short of the image of God. We have nothing to offer God. We have no way to repay Him when we offend Him. And yet, <clears throat> uh, we've committed sins that place us under His righteous judgment. In ourselves, we should see no hope whatsoever. But if we look at the Scriptures, we also see that they're full of hope. God will do something to redeem His people. Look to God for salvation. God will provide a lamb caught in a thicket to spare our blood. God will place our sins on a substitute as seen in the sacrifices. God will cover us with blood and pass over His people when He comes in judgment. Somehow, a perfectly righteous God who cannot be in the presence of sin will find a way to dwell in the midst of His people. The Scriptures are constantly pointing to a time when I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, when we see God's law, we shouldn't see something that we can accomplish. We shouldn't see no hope for ourselves uh, in that path. We should despair at our own efforts towards self-righteousness and look to God for mercy. We should see nothing good in ourselves, and we should cry out in despair to a God who promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> the solution to how a perfectly righteous and a perfectly just God 
could forgive sin and dwell in the midst of a sinful people isn't easy to see in the Old Testament. The, the scriptures that the Pharisees had at, at that time, but that, that God is promising such a solution is perfectly clear. And Jesus just told them more than enough that they had everything that they need to see clearly how Jesus is that solution. But Jesus is not a solution to take what effort sinful people can produce and give them a little bit of a boost and help them out. Jesus is only a savior to those who despair of their own rags of self-righteousness and put him on as a garment without spot or blemish. Everything that the Pharisees needed to see this was right there in front of them, but they simply refused to see it. Verse 40 is, uh, is really clear on this point. Uh, the ESV does a, a better job than some translations. You refuse to come to me that you might live. The, the stress is very clear evidently in the Greek. Um, other good translations would uh, be that they do not will to come or that they have no heart or no desire or no inclination to come to Jesus. The choice to reject Jesus is entirely their own sinful choice made completely of their free will. Scripture consistently places the blame for rejecting Jesus entirely on those who choose to reject him. <clears throat> and so one of the things that I, I thought would be good to do at this point when uh, my small group went through this is to kind of look at what it is about the Scripture that should prompt us to believe. And so I've come up with a, a list of things that I would point to. There's probably some really good things that aren't on my list <clears throat> that, that you might come up with. But you might look to the unity of, of, of the Scriptures, how there's this consistent message throughout 66 different books by different authors. There's a continuous, consistent revelation that occurs over 2,000 years, over many, many different authors as the Scriptures have, have been written. Um, and you know, together, that, that unity as well as you know, this transmission over this uh, millennia o over which the Scriptures were written is quite remarkable. There really isn't anything that you could point to that would be even close uh, in any other tradition. Um, we could look at the uniquely asse accurate assessment of human nature that the Scriptures provide. You know, new books are constantly being published kind of about what's wrong with people and what people can do to get their act together, and they keep publishing new books on the subject because the old ones don't work. Um, but the Bible has a, an accurate understanding of that. Uh, we, we can understand and predict how, how people behave um, be, uh, when we, we look at things through biblical eyes. You could look to fulfilled prophecy. There's many examples of prophecies that are made and, and later fulfilled that really could only uh, be the case if God was divinely inspiring the, the Scriptures. Another thing about the Scriptures that you could point to is that you know, a lot of ancient writings really kind of build the, the people in them up. The scriptures present very accurate assessments of people. People have strengths and people have weaknesses. Um, they're, they're not a, a heliography like you would get you know, in, in something written by people. Um, you could look at the response of the disciples. You, you have kind of ordinary fishermen who spend three years with Jesus and are, are, are clearly convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. You could look at the transformation of the disciples from you know, uh, disciples that are presented in the Gospels as consistently clueless about what Jesus is saying to you know, leaders in the church. You could look at them um, as you know, cowards that kind of consistently abandon Jesus when he really needs them and later uh, stand for him. 
And you could look for the, to the fact that the disciples all devoted their lives to spreading you know, what they learned from Jesus and proclaiming who, who Jesus was. And 11 of the 12, uh, uh, according to history at least, were, were martyred for that. And you know, even the 12th, John, if we uh, accept kind of the church history account of things, still spent his life proclaiming the gospel and standing for what he, he believed. Um, I would, would say that all of this testimony that I've gone through is certainly a, it's reliable testimony, but maybe in the, the way that this passage is looking at things, I would c- categorize this as testimony like the testimony of John the Baptist's. Um, to the extent that it draws us to the Bible, it, it's profitable testimony. We, we should point to these things or, and other internal evidences like them that support the authenticity of the Bible as God's Word so that some might be saved, just as Jesus pointed to John's testimony even though he didn't accept testimony from man. Um, it doesn't take the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, though, to, to recognize that any of these uh, things are, are, are correct and to accept the Bible as authentic and a legitimate revelation from God. And if you think to the Pharisees, that uh, if, if they would have a slightly different list than this, of course, um, for you know, why they accepted the Old Testament scriptures as we accept the Bible to be God's word, but it wasn't, that understanding wasn't profitable to them. They, they were uh, missing uh, you know, something very important. Um, thankfully, God has provided more reliable testimony. We can look at the uniqueness of the gospel, um, let's see, <clears throat> which uh, you know, it, it presents the only logical way that sinful human beings can possibly dwell forever in the presence of a perfectly righteous and just God. And that's one thing that I'm really appreciating about Tim's sermon series is how it's helping us to understand some of the logic and some of the richness of, of the gospel. Um, we can look at the person of Jesus Christ as the, revealed in the Scriptures. The more we look at Him, the more clear the divine origins of the Bible become. But to see these, we need to see at least to some extent the depth of our sin, our depravity, and our inability to make ourselves presentable before God. While all of this should be clear to any rational mind, our minds aren't rational. They refuse to see the plain truth. In fact, they're remarkably clever at avoiding inconvenient truths. Thankfully, God has provided the ministry of our Holy Spirit to op- of, of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see this truth, to see our completely hopeless state without Christ. Um, through this revelation from the Spirit, we can see what the Pharisees refused to see. You, Jesus Christ, as a perfectly beautiful Savior that we can call on for mercy, and receiving that mercy, we can put our complete confidence in Him and and not in ourselves. And, and because of this, we we believe and we believe in an authentic way. Uh, and I think this is where Jesus is trying to take the religious leaders. This, this started over a dispute about proper Sabbath keeping, but that's not what they needed. They didn't need to have their theology of the Sabbath corrected nearly as badly as they needed to know that helpless state that they were in and that the only hope for salvation was standing right in front of them. So, kind of continuing on in this section, verse 41, it, Jesus states, I do not receive glory from people. And the subtle implication that Jesus is making there is what he's going to be developing in the following verses. That implication is that, um, that 
the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are accusing him, do receive their glory primarily from people. And they're not uh, as concerned with receiving glory from God at, at that moment. Um, <clears throat> so uh, why is it that uh, in verse 32 it says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Why does, why does Jesus say this? One thing to kind of look at is that the, the focus of these verses is, is on glory. That's kind of a, an important idea in, in these verses. Um, Jesus has already stated elsewhere that the glory that he receives comes from God the Father, and he's implied that in this section as well. But um, that is not the, where the Pharisees are looking for glory. The glory that they cr crave has nothing to do with God. They want to be seen by their fellow Jews as spiritual. And so I want to go to Matthew chapter 23 and kind of listen to a description that Jesus gives of, of the religious leaders. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. Um, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Um, <clears throat> Lincoln describes the, their problem very well. Uh, he wrote a commentary on, on John. If the love of God dwells in someone, they would seek God's glory above all else. Uh, they're clearly in the section seeking their own glory, uh, not God's glory. And this is a, a really easy trap to fall into. It. You know, this week in preparing this and, and last week uh, as I was preparing this, you know, the, this idea really convicted me. Um, I like to be seen as having my act together. I, I like to be seen as knowing the Bible well. I like people to think well of me at church. Um, I, th I think to various extents, everyone in this room uh, likes that. <clears throat> but do we care more about that than we care about having an authentic relationship with God? Or, um, or do we care more about the pr praise of men? None of us is perfect in this respect, but I think the more that we look to Jesus Christ, the more that we tend to forget ourselves and to be transformed by what we see in our Savior. So why is it that Jesus is bringing up glory uh, when he's uh, concluding his argument? And I, so I, I thought about this, and what Jesus has done is he's produced three incredibly reliable witnesses that far surpass the most reliable human witness that he could have produced. That would have been John the Baptist. He, th those witnesses are his works, God the Father, and Scripture. But one of the things that we see as Jesus brings up these witnesses is that the Pharisees are blind to those witnesses. It's not because the testimony is unreliable, but it's because they refuse to accept that testimony. So they, they may well be completely blind to what God is revealing through the, the Scriptures and through Jesus' works and what God Himself is revealing, but I think they can very plainly see that their motives aren't centered on God. They're centered on their own glory, and that's something that they can't escape. They can hide it, but um, they, they know it's correct. A, a proper response to seeing misplaced motivation is to repent and to seek healing from God. We all know that the majority of the religious leaders did not do this, but maybe there were some that did see that sinful underlying motivation and that the Spirit 
you know, eventually used that to help them to see Jesus for who he is. Maybe in this incident or, or one like it. Uh, and eventually Nicodemus uh, was moved to place his faith in Christ as we kind of later see him acting in faith in the gospel, although we didn't see him in initially converted when he uh, encounters Jesus. Maybe there's other religious leaders there, maybe a minority, that, that were able to see Jesus for who he was uh, through that. <clears throat> How are the, the healing and the aftermath of the healing linked? And I, I think is kind of stepping back and looking at this, we can look and see that we are all, in a way, we're all this paralytic. We're in a completely hopeless state. We need to be healed, and we don't have the, the means to do it. We could receive that healing from Jesus, uh, and that will let us recognize Jesus as our perfect Savior. Or we could be the Pharisees, so busy keeping the letter of the law and forcing others to follow their extra-biblical rules that we lose sight of God's work. They were so busy trying to earn God's favor that they were blind to the free offer of God's favor. When they saw the paralytic walking with his mat, they didn't see an opportunity to praise God. They saw an opportunity to show off the superiority of their own righteousness over Jesus' righteousness. They instead showed themselves not to know anything about God. They did not, uh, not only did they uh, completely fail to see what God was doing in their presence, but they actively persecuted God in the flesh. Jesus uh, moves past the Sabbath controversy right to the real heart of the matter. Who is he? Even though they dil diligently search the scriptures, they are blind to the God described because they can't recognize him when Jesus does the work of God right in their midst. Uh, so that is kind of the ending of at least what I've got on John chapter 5. Uh, I think we've got time for one quick question, maybe two. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, not everyone who says to you, Lord, Lord, really knows you. I pray that you would give all of us spiritual eyesight to behold you as you truly are, and I pray that we would see ourselves as we are, not as those who understand doctrine deeply, not as those who are well-regarded in the church, not as those who diligently served you, but as beggars, blind, desperate, helpless without you. I pray that we would never uh, be satisfied with ourselves, but that we would find ourselves completely satisfied with you. Thank you for your word. Just pray that it would sink into our hearts this week. In Jesus' name.